This podcast was recorded at the Battle of Ideas Festival at the Barbican in London. Welcome to this final kind of gathering. Not final. Final for me chairing today. Um, right, one of the things that's happened is I'm so tired, I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so there is a very strong danger of this all going horribly wrong. And even worse than that, I've got a fabulous panel, but they're not doing any speeches. It's supposed to be about me talking to them intelligently. So I'm saying to the panel now, you got it all rests on you, because there's no chance of me saying anything remotely coherent. We wanted to kind of um, think about building an intellectual legacy and the, the battle for which ideas, which could, could sound, you know, really ridiculous and, you know, kind of clever title or be about nothing. One of the things that you realise when you run something called the Institute of Ideas is, is that it, it, it's the sort of thing where... PR companies say, oh, that's really great. You know, we've got our ideas in our mission statement as well. And you think, oh, how dispiriting. Um, and, and people sort of say, and then the, the other thing that happens is people phone up and say, is that the Institute of Ideas? I've got a very good idea. <laughs> and you always, it's kind of like, uh, no disrespect to anyone in the room, but it's a bit like nutter alert. You know, oh, no, disaster has occurred, right? And yet, in all seriousness, the whole battle of ideas, this is all about trying to stir things up intellectually and to create a richer intellectual life and to bring together some fantastic speakers who who just feel like there's a gap somewhere and who kind of want to talk about things intelligently. And it's not that, it's not all going well. Despite all that, it's not all going well in the realm of ideas. So I just thought I'd talk to people about it, see what they had to say. So I'm going to introduce my panel. Um, they've all spoken throughout the festival at different things. People will already remember uh, Rob Raymond, who is the, the founder of the Nexus Institute. And if you heard him earlier, you'll know that, A, I couldn't shut him up, and B, he's really interesting, right? Um, and he's the Netherlands... The uh, Nexus Institute is based in the Netherlands, but it, it basically works with, has had to speak. You should see the people who've spoken. The events that uh, Rob has organised, absolutely everybody in any name in kind of intellectual life uh, anywhere in the world has, has, has crossed his path. So I thought it'd be really interesting to sort of reflect with you on, and then some of the things you were talking about earlier, about Harvard and so on, uh, and, and, you know, and education and liberal arts education and so on. So that's why you're there. That's good. Then we've got uh, Andrew Keane. Uh, he's, uh, he's a kind of a digital guru, uh, allegedly. Uh, He's the author of uh, Digital Vertigo, How Today's Online Social Revolution is Dividing, Diminishing and Disorientating Us. And, I mean, people know who Andrew is. He's he's very famous over from America for this festival. We're delighted to have him. But the reason I wanted him here was because I think we're not quite sure whether we're getting smarter or not by having access to more information via the media. And... It's an obvious discussion at the moment, and the book title says it all, is to, to contemplate, are we now... People will always say to me, oh, but, you know, now the whole of your... The knowledge is at the click of a mouse away, right? And it seems very appealing, right? No big problems. And yet Andrew raises at least some ideas that we have to consider and think about. We've then got uh, Dr Ellie Lee, who is a reader in social policy at the University of Can- Canterbury, who I... Heard this morning speaking on a keynote in here on, on, on free will. One of the uh, advisors uh, to the Institute of Ideas on our advisory group and always find very interesting and also has been doing a bit of thinking in a different context about what's happening in academia and the sort of, some of the stresses in, in the UK particularly in terms of what research is, impact agendas and so on. So I'm going to be talking to Ellie about that. And then I'm absolutely delighted, because we're trying to get him here for ages, uh, to have Ivan uh, Krastev, and he's a founding member of the European Council on Foreign Relations. He's absolutely one of the key people. You know, when I, when I was telling people who we had speaking at the festival, so many people said, I can't believe you've got Ivan Krastev to speak. So I, uh, I, I wanted to kind of just get you all to say something about my first idea, which is that, which I tried to put in the, the, the long blurb at least, which is, you know, lots of people actually do think that intellectual life's doing quite well. There's a, all around the world, there's a kind of growth of think tanks uh, who, who sit around kind of trying to come up with big ideas, which, you know, maybe that's all that this is. You know, is that is that the kind of pursuit of ideas that we want? 
And at the same time, we've seen governments all around the world increasingly turning to academic experts, sometimes actually getting rid of democratically elected people and sticking experts in, um, and saying, well, you know, these people, you know, it's much more important to have an economist run the society than an elected Democrat. And there's fad for evidence-based policy, bringing in experts to kind of advise politicians with the evidence, which looks like kind of good intellectual. So am I being a little bit pessimistic when I'm worried about intellectual life? I mean, maybe it's thriving. I'm a bit of a, it's dumbing down. A lot of people just think I'm kind of being old-fashioned, some kind of golden age of intellectual life thriving. So who wants to speak? Andrew, you've always got something to say. Andrew. Yeah, I, uh, well, just to s- kick things off, I do think you are being excessive. I mean, I'm always accused of being a pessimist. I think you are being excessively pessimistic. I'm not sure if it's a golden age for intellect. I think the, the, the think tanks aren't intellectuals, and academics generally aren't intellectuals either. But it's still a golden age. It wasn't a golden age, but I think it's a healthy age for intellectuals. I, when you think of a, a couple of people come to mind, uh, Christopher Hitchens and his popularity, and Zizek's popularity, and the way in which you know, two guys who have interesting, sometimes difficult ideas have popularized them, have a lot of people reading their books, watching their movies. So I'm, I'm reasonably optimistic. I also think it's good to have an absence of big ideas. Big ideas are dangerous. So uh, big ideas are ones we want to destroy. So the absence of big ideas is not necessarily bad for intellectual life. In fact, you know, when big ideas dominate, you generally don't have much intellectual life. Okay, well, that's enough to get us going. Uh, I can feel, I can, I, my, my, my overtiredness has been replaced by a, a willingness to fight. Um, so that's always good. Rob, your thoughts? Well, I politely disagree with my uh, very nice neighbour. There is, there is a beautiful story about the, the whole setting of, of, of our discussion, um, which you find in the novel The Man Without Qualities of Robert Musil. So what, what, what drives that story, a long story, is, is the Austrians have a problem. And the problem of the Austrians is that they know that the Germans want to celebrate uh, that their emperor is an emperor for 20 or 25 years, but their emperor, the Austrian emperor of the Habsburg monarchy, is emperor for over 50 years or something like that. So they have a committee. It's it's entitled uh, The the Parallel uh, Action, uh, and and this committee comes together to think about what's the big idea to celebrate that their emperor is much longer emperor than the emperor of of the Germans. Now, obviously, for Musil, this is a metaphor, and it's a metaphor about the fact that we are running, Western civilization is, is running out of ideas because there is no longer a big idea. Well, which, which big ideas are there still around? Well, there is indeed communism and around, you know, fascism and maybe things around uh, capitalism. Now, after World War II, indeed, we realized there are no longer big ideas, right? We, we entered the era of, of, of postmodernity, anything goes, etc., etc., etc. But what happens next? Then there is Marcuse, uh, who wrote this wonderful book, The One Dimensional Man. And what is it that he explains in the 60s? That we have become stuck in our paradigm that... That because there is still a big idea, there is always a big idea, and the big idea, which is now our paradigm, is one which is uh, rationality and technology. And Marcuse explains that all our thinking, everything, uh, our priorities, and even our language and our values are infiltrated by this paradigm, and we can recognize it by our own language. We speak about smart, that is true. Smart ideas. We no longer speak about wisdom. We speak about sustainability. We no longer speak about quality. Um, we speak. Quick, 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 quick. Well, we quick. speak about quick, 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 and we no longer take the time. No, no, we no longer take the time really to think about things. So it says something about this paradigm. So and it and it doesn't help us. But the whole thing is now narrowed down. Oh, yes, we speak about globalization. We no longer talk about cosmopolitanism. This is also part of this big paradigm uh, thing. So 
a way, uh, and, and, and so if you then start to think about where all those crises come from, the financial crisis, economic crisis, environmental crisis, well, it is all part of the fact that we are stuck in this paradigm. So the question is, you know, where to find a new idea? And that's for the next round. But my suggestion would be that uh, Europe should be the next big idea, especially here for the UK. But that's, okay. I'll leave that for another round. Okay, so Ivan... Where do you, how do you assess where we're at intellectually in some of these things? Uh, I do right? believe I was always afraid of a panel with a title like this because people start uh, quoting Keynes that everything is run by the ideas of dead economists. And you know that today the world is run by old jokes and new images. No, but uh, th this is, I'm not saying this is a joke. If you see what is moving people, normally it's a very funny thing which should be very short. And of course, people are very much moved by images. Even if you see all these revolutions that people talk about, they don't have ideological names anymore. They're always named by the Twitter or Facebook. So from this point of view, something is happening on this level of idea. It's much more interesting and much more free to have a discussion. But the problem with uh, where I see with the intellectual ideas is that nevertheless of what you're saying, you're not taking any risk anymore. There is, you can say any bullshit you want. But I mean any. And this was the problem. Because before, exactly because there was some kind of a normative framework, there were certain things that when you are saying you're taking risk, it could be risk with government, but much more it could be risk with society. People have been really kind of outraged. People are not outraged when you're talking something that they don't like. They said this is his PR strategy. And from this point of view, I do believe this makes the intellectual debate kind of an empty ideas, you can have an interesting argument, but you don't have any ideas because you don't have the feeling that people are risking anything on the basis of what you are saying. And secondly, what happened on the level of the governments, because I do believe intellectually it's also interesting how governments are justifying their policies. Governments are not justifying their policies anymore that this is good or this is bad. For example, when Mrs. Thatcher some years ago said there is no alternative, it was an intellectual statement. She believed that there is no alternative because this is the only right policies. You can agree or disagree with her, but this was a belief. When somebody today is taking you that, telling you that there is no alternative, it does not mean that this is a right policy. It means it could be right policy or wrong policy, but I can do only this. And when somebody is telling you something like this, how intellectually arguing with him? And this is, for me, the problem with all this. On one level, it's very interesting because there is a lot of ideas on the table, but on the other side, most of these ideas are opinions. And people are much more entertaining them than really taking them seriously. Yeah, can I, can I just ask you, just yeah. uh, for your, the beginning bit, I just didn't quite understand it. So for some clarification, one of the things that tends to happen just in terms of the first thing yeah. you said is that on the one hand, people are prepared to say anything and everything. Yeah. But on the other hand, people are often, I think, walking on eggshells frightened to offend people too. It kind of, True. How, does that, how do those two things sit together? Uh, the, the first thing which I want to say is that very much it, uh, what I was talking was true for the societies in which we are living. There are the societies in which, for example, you can go to the Islam world and there are certain things that you are taking risk of saying things. And of course there are different type of regimes in which when you are saying things you are taking risks. But this is the problem here. And on one level, of course, you are politically correct. You are not trying to offend people. But this is why, nevertheless, of what you are saying, you are saying like this. I don't mean it. It's qualifying. This is why I do believe the sense of humor on one level is very liberating. But on the other uh, level, you always can say everything and saying, but I was joking, or this was just a reference, and so right, on and so right. on. Have you been to America? Yeah. I'm, they don't yeah. have humor there. No, you, you, let's, let's, you're not, no, no, they you're take not themselves right. very seriously. The idea that, I mean... I, uh, yeah, but on the other side, you have John Stewart being probably the most powerful uh, man for part of America, and the way how Americans are getting their information, especially the younger Americans, is through jokes. Okay, right. Ali, just give us your thoughts. Um, I mean, I certainly wouldn't read, say, for this country, the fact that government says it wants to have people from various academic institutions and academic departments give it some evidence. I certainly wouldn't take that as any type of measure of respect for intellectualism or intellectual life. Uh, in fact, I would see it as a, as, a, as a manifestation of the opposite. 
So I think one of the things that's uh, striking about now is that, well, the political class in general, certainly think tanks, but I also think other sort of swathes of opinion formers are really involved in um, evading the key issue, which is how do you generate ideas properly? And really what I think is going on is much more a kind of um, a search for a quick fix. So you think you can kind of get the the off-the-peg idea um, from somebody you pull in from an academic department. And obviously it's what think tanks do, you know, churning around trying to come up with an idea. You know, and then you can kind of list them off, can't you, the way they kind of emerge, whether it's the big society or whatever, Um, just these kind of off-the-peg ideas that sort of pop up out of nowhere. And I think, sadly, oftentimes this does also go on, you know, within universities itself and in the way academic work operates, where it's as if you kind of, you know, invent an idea and invent a theory and then that's going to make you famous um, and you become known for it. But in a way that's very detached and disengaged from trying to engage with both the present but also, I think, most significantly the past. I mean, my account of where genuine ideas come from and the way that we try and um, generate an intellectual life is to properly try and assimilate and understand the past and understand the intellectual gains of the past and use it to help interpret our present. And certainly in the discipline that I work in, that is manifestly lacking. So, for example, people do obviously discuss and reanalyse Weber or Durkheim, but it's very static. There's no attempt to really understand or come to terms with thinkers from the past in their own context, what we can learn from them for, for understanding now. Um, so it's a very kind of ossified um, way of going on. And in that sense, I don't think the fact that um, governments are interested in getting, you know, Dr So-and-so from wherever into, you know, report to whatever committee they've got going on is at all out of line with the fact that uh, government has a phenomenal level of disdain um, for the academy and intellectual life in terms of the way it's driving the university and the way it's organising things. I mean, government policy in this country is entirely organised around ridding anything vaguely intellectual or academic from university life. I mean, the whole rationale for universities, as we know, if you read government policy, the last thing they're interested in is anything to do with ideas or intellectualism. Um, it's to do with solving economic problems, training a workforce and you know, raising the self-esteem of young people. It's not, you know, the last thing they're interested in really is the even education, um, never mind fostering a proper um, intellectual climate. So I think at the moment, you know, things are pretty bad, but the good news is, you know, that it's in the capacity of any of us to um, do something about this. Um, um, yeah, can I just, just because I wanted to um, ask you, I wanted to do, uh, Andrew, just ask you about the big ideas point, but also kind of it's just the, what we can do about it. Because that's quite interesting, because I'm sure there'll be a bit of an, or there could be a bit of an argument about ideologies and whether it's good that ideologies end and all that sort of stuff. But actually, I was really interested in what you argued yesterday. It seems to me that the search for the big idea is silly, and that ends up being like the search for the big... That's, that's really your point. I mean, everybody's kind of searching for the big idea is so you can kind of find it. Yeah. I mean, you always think, what is that? That's a mad concept. Um, and so when people sort of say, we're brainstorming for an idea, you do worry. Uh, as to what they would come up with. I mean, that's going to be a fashion or a fad. Yeah. And people also, I think, think things can be solved that superficially. But anyway, regardless of whether ideologies is good or bad or, or that kind of point you were making, you made some interesting points yesterday about the erosion between private and public, for example. You were talking about some of the issues around authority. And what it really struck me was, if you actually say to people today, I think it's very important that we understand that there's a danger of the erosion between private and public, mm. often people don't know what you mean. And when you, like you were saying, I don't mean because they're stupid, but because you realise that the concepts of privacy and what is the public sphere have been eroded. And even intellectually they've been eroded and you can't get people to discuss it properly. And I thought it was really interesting when you were talking about authority because quite a lot of people were very impressed with what you said. Some people disagreed with you. But I was having a ridiculous conversation with some people at the session who were basically saying, oh, he's an authoritarian. But, you know, in a, but it was a kind of like they didn't listen to what you were saying. So for me, they are big ideas in the genuine sense. Authority, privacy, public. And you were actually, I thought, rather keen on them yesterday. So I'm just asking you... Well, yeah, but... But the fact we were talking about them yeah. and that these are issues which are now, I think, being debated reflect... Uh, I mean, that's a different subject. That, that does reflect 
I think, an intellectual wealth. I mean, so the, yeah. the issue of privacy, I just wrote a book called, as you said, Digital Vertigo, which is defense of privacy, a critique of the publicness of dig digital life. I mean, in America, that's a huge issue. Um, I'm not the only person to have written a book about it. There are a lot of people on the other side, people like Clay Shirky and Jeff Jarvis, and it's an ongoing debate, both right. online and in, in, in the world itself. So that I think that speaks... I mean, maybe what we're saying, what you're saying is that the, the traditional intellectual debates of left-right have gone away, and I think you'd be right there. And they've been replaced by a much more complex narrative, um, which is also bound up, I think, in the decline of the state, the shift from an industrial hierarchical capitalism of the 20th century to a more individualized uh, sort of brand-centric uh, capitalism of the 21st century, which is driven, which is both caused and a consequence of, of the Internet. But, I mean, um, so all those yeah. things change the nature of intellectual life. I think they individualize them more, which is why, and, and I think Faraday deals with this in a very interesting way, which is why uh, you see this growth in identity politics and identity culture, which are a replacement for the old left-right ideologies. Um, but that doesn't reflect a poverty of intellectual life. It just means that there's a, there's a shift. And what it means also is that the, pu the public and the private get confused, which isn't coincidental given the way in which ideology and traditional political ideology has been personalized and individualized, which is why people take offense so easy, because when you criticize you know, them as, you know, when, you, when you're supposedly sexist, you're against gays, you're against Muslims or Jews or all these other groups out there, people are deeply offended. I think it touches on the issues that you debated at your, your freedom thing. Yeah, okay. I, Ivan, any, any thoughts on those kind of issues, I mean, or the points that I was making about big ideas and so on? But listen, let's... Uh, if you try to go and try to compare, for example, this economic crisis, what was the effect of the ideas, and compared to the previous ones, there is one thing which was strange and, in my view, interesting, explaining part of it. In the 1930s, you have a failure of the market, but people decided that the government is going to solve economic problems. You start trusting something. In the 1970s, the other way around, there was a kind of a crisis in the trust of the government, but then basically you start to believe that the market is going to solve issues. This crisis, you don't trust the market anymore, but you didn't go back to trust the government. And I do believe what has changed, and from this point of view, ideological politics is a polarization, but it's based on different trust groups. Now we are much more in mistrust is what we trust. And this is why all these talks, for example, this fashion of transparency and so on, you're not going on a content. In order to understand, you're all the time trying to say, listen, for me, it's enough this policy to be transparent. But in the world, there are a lot of policies that have been very transparent, and they have been wrong, they have been bad, they have been evil. By the way, the Hitler's final solution never was a non-transparent policy. He was talking about this all the time. So from this point of view, I do believe that there is a problem with this, and it goes very much to the problem of the privacy and the public, because people on one level want the government to be totally transparent to them, but if the government is totally transparent, the other people are going to be transparent too, and you're going to be transparent too, because this is what the government is doing, doing people. And I do believe this type of a conflict is very much there. And of course also, and this is my last point, people wanted also the governments to treat them in the way the market is treating them, which means taking their biases seriously. I want to be kind of personal customer of the government. Being treated like everybody else does not matter anymore. And I do believe this is the problem, and this is why I agree that there is an interesting intellectual debates, but these debates are much more going in a different spheres. People go together. It's not simply the big idea has uh, disappeared. What has disappeared is a common conversation. You don't have a big conversation. It's not simply big idea. You have a small, very great, small conversations on different issues between interested people. I, th I think that's uh, actually very interesting. Anyway, um, I, 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 you can reflect on any of that, but I actually wanted to ask Ali and Rob, I wanted to just reflect a little bit on also um, what's happening in academia. Uh, I think the big conversation, or whether we're able to have a big conversation, is hugely important, particularly in relation to Europe. I'm not convinced that people are. 
But also, just in terms of academia, one of the things here, Rob, what, what, whatever about what you were saying about the American universities, is, and this is not because students aren't clever or, or hardworking. I mean, they often are, but there is often a situation where students will say, why should I read that book if it's not going to help me get the degree? So this is in Oxford doing philosophy, and people sort of like, does this contribute to my essay? It's like sort of, no. Um, no, but you're doing philosophy at Oxford, so maybe you should want to read it, really. But there's, you know, this is a common tale. Read the Times Higher every week. It happens all the time. Obviously, that's not to say that there aren't lots of people who want to come to the Battle of Ideas. Uh, we now have set up something called the Academy, the Institute of Ideas Sets Wing. It's a residential, um, three-day residential, where we uh, look at philosophy, the classics, history, and so on. The, the people most enthusiastic for it are undergraduates. The sad bit is, is they're undergraduates who say, we don't get this at university, so that's a bit of a blow. But what I want to know is, is that are the young wanting to, to aspire to greater things, or are they over-instrumental? Who's to blame for what's happening in higher education? And is, or should we just forget higher education because it's just now become you know, a credentialising service for jobs? No, no, but we, we, we have to know what higher education is. And the, 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 in my perception, the, the, the problem is that we live in a time of a big idea, let's call it a paradigm, which is basically not interested in intellectual life because intellectual life doesn't refer to anything what we find truly important. And for the things we find truly important, and, and that's all measured to you know, what is useful, can we make money with it, etc., etc., etc. There was a certain greatness in, in, in Bertrand Russell and, and Gerald Moore when there was the young Wittgenstein coming to Cambridge. And uh, they said, well, you're such a clever guy, you, you should get your PhD. And Wittgenstein said, well, you know, I'm not interested to, to write a PhD, but I have a small book which might be of any interest to you, which, which was the Tractatus. You know, it's the smallest book ever. And he gave it to, to, to Russell and, and, and Moore, and they started to ask questions, and Wittgenstein didn't answer. And they asked another question, and Wittgenstein still, <laughs> again, didn't answer. And then at a certain moment, Wittgenstein stood up and said, look, there is nothing you understand of my work. You decide what you want to do with it, yes or no, and one hour later he had his PhD. That's the kind of greatness you no longer find in, at the universities anymore. And if somebody like Immanuel Kant would have been alive, he would never get any tenure at any university. You know, this too much true. time... This is not true. In Sofia University, anybody can get, even Kant. Pardon? Anyone can get in, even can't yeah. I mean, you can argue. I mean, you can argue that you, know, you keep on bringing. You brought up Musil. You brought up. I mean, Musil's work is. I've tried to read it a hundred times. It's in, to me at least is incomprehensible. It doesn't necessarily benefit intellectual life. And I mean, Wittgenstein wasn't exactly beneficial to intellectual life. In and in, in that generation in professionalizing philosophy and putting it into the university. So. Uh, I think it would be good, actually, if Wittgenstein didn't get tenure. He probably actually reverse. He deserves tenure. He deserves to be locked up in a university, is what, which is what has happened to academic philosophy. Okay, and, and, and it, no, but I mean, I think I think that's quite an important point. You know, can we look to academia? I mean, do we think that intellectual life can come alive in academia, even if it wasn't the way it is in the contemporary period, or is does that ossify knowledge? Right. I, think, I mean, I, I think, think that the universe. I mean, this is a the thing, with quick, the, the, the thing with the university. Very quickly in America, is it's about to be blown up, just as media's been blown up by the internet and digital. So the university's being blown up. The idea of education will be blown up, maybe for the better, maybe for the worse. But the fundamental problem, I know a lot about academics in America, the biggest problem in America is that academics have become so specialized that they're essentially refugees from intellectual life. And all the interesting thinking takes place outside the university. So I actually think it's a good thing to blow the university up. Now, I don't know okay, what will right. replace it, but right. certainly something, it can't be any worse than what it is now. Ellie. I mean, I've, well, I don't really agree with that. I think that there's all sorts of places in society that ideas can come from, and there's all sorts of people that can get involved in trying to develop them and generate them. I mean, I think the prior question is to ask, well, why do we need them? And what is it that we're trying to address here and sort out? I think some of the points that have been made about the end of left and right and some of your comments were very pertinent there. 
I mean, my uh, way of describing the problem at the moment is that the key thing that we've got to address is uncertainty, the fact that we don't know how to connect the past, the present and the future. And the reason why that problem is so pressing now is for some of the reasons that have been described. And, but I do think genuinely at the moment there are far too many people in universities and elsewhere um, who aren't really trying to get to grips with that problem. I mean, as far as students go... You know, there are lots of problems at the moment and things are as you describe. However, in terms of my own teaching, what I'm trying to do, I think that um, you do your best carrying on trying to pose problems, raise problems and get people to think. And you hope that something sets off a spark in somebody's mind where they start to genuinely want to try and grapple with a problem and fight with it and, and get to the bottom of it. And that still happens, but it can happen in other places as well. I do think, though, that there is a problem, and I don't really know how to address this, with the way academics are responding or their lack of response to um, some of the things that are going on in, in universities at the moment. I mean, I don't know how much you want to go into that in terms of what's happening in British universities and the way what people think they're doing is being, being defined. I mean, just to say briefly on it, I think one of the biggest problems that's emerged in terms of the practice of academics in British universities is that increasingly lots of people, and certainly in my subject area, are doing what's called advocacy research more than research. So they're not actually genuinely trying to work out in an open-ended way um, an idea or an answer to the problem. I mean, an example from this week... Um, so the universities involved in this in this country were Dundee, Oxford, York, Brunel, St George's and the University of London. Uh, they hooked up with UNICEF to come up with the following. New research reveals breastfeeding could save the NHS millions. Now maybe in somebody's world that is a definition of research. It's not in mine. I mean, where this started was with the endpoint. So before anybody ever looked at any study and anybody ever had any thought in their head about any of this, they decided already what the conclusion was going to be, which is that the government should give UNICEF some more money. You know, they knew that. And then what they've done is gone and looked at a bunch of papers and analysed in, in, in them in a certain way to be able to come up with that particular argument. And that is everywhere all the time now. And exactly why so many of my colleagues are getting into that game, I don't know. I don't know whether it's entirely because of impact agendas and the ref or because they're doing something good. But there is a, a definite abandonment of an effort to do what you would properly call research, which is a, a, a struggle to try and answer questions in an open-ended way. Um, and there is far too little of that going on, for sure. Um, Ivan, quick. Yeah. Just, just very quick on this. Because uh, I do believe something very important happened uh, uh, in the research, and this is huge data available. Do you know that in the social sciences, 95% of the quotes are coming from papers or books being published in the last three years? Uh, uh, one of the things that happened to the academic life is the disappearance of the second-hand bookstores. Uh, because, of course, you can get any book now, but you should know about it. The good, what was good about uh, second-hand bookstores is that you go around and you see things that basically you're not looking for. And this is, in my view, a kind of academic which is going to the second-hand bookstore is my definition of an intellectual. Because what we see these days is also because of the fact that it became a very globalized area. People go very much on mathematics because mathematics sells very well. To be a political scientist in the United States basically means to be very good at mathematics. If you cannot make a mathematical model, you, you don't basically go there. Uh, and as a result of it, we, I do believe there is a major transformation of the academic field. You have a lot of data, and as a result of it, I very much agree with advocacy research. Some of the researchers started to behave like lawyers. You can get data on everything. For example, go with, for example, American presidential campaign. There is not an idea for which you cannot find an economist who made a research and on the base of the data they agree that you are doing this and it's going to fit, you're doing that and this is going to fit. And this is becoming a problem because people don't take seriously anymore. They don't take seriously anything that is performed as research. But what, what about, did you watch the debate between Romney and yeah. um, Obama? I mean, there are big issues. They didn't throw data at each other for the most part. They were talking about two different political alternatives. But, but it was interesting how they talked about this. Basically, one said, you know, we're going to reduce the taxes this and this and this. As a result of it, there are five independent studies who show that we're going to get the revenues going up. 
and the other saying, no, I'm going to give you five other studies which show that you cannot make it up. I'm not, I do believe it's a major difference and there is a choice in America to be made. I don't believe that there is no difference between two of them. But the basic problem is, if you want simply on evidence to decide for whom to vote, you should decide which of the five you trust. Well, you know, I'm, I'm a refugee from American political science department, and, and the data, you're right about those data, people, but the interesting political discussions in America take place outside the political absolutely. science department. Yeah, no, but the, the, I, I don't think the problem is the political science department, which there is a problem, but here, and in fact throughout Europe, the point I think that Ivan's making, that Ali's also saying, which fits in with the whole thing, is, is that people wave the data around instead of a, a, an argument that's got You mean depth. a moral, a moral Well, we blame, well, moral Vic, argument, we blame I mean, the philosophers for that. I don't right? think people are even trying to make an argument anymore. They're, not I mean, they're just throwing around it. a load of figures and statistics, calling it evidence. I mean, it's not evidence. Evidence emerges from open-ended inquiry, where you look at things in the round and consider that there's different possibilities. But I, but I think the thing, I think as well, so to open it up, I think the thing is, is that people don't, actually, ironically, necessarily even know what an argument is. I thought your point, Ivan, about second-hand bookshops, I like that sort of thing. Um, but anyway, I, I like the whole seren- you know, the serendipity, wandering, you know, that's like my... That's good. But, but, um, but just to respond to Ivan's point about second... I mean, a- Amazon's done an amazing job reinvigorating second-hand books. No, but it's not... You don't, you don't search around. That's not the point. But, but do you know what... Uh, because this is, important, this is interesting. Because basically yeah. they're trying to guess what yes. you could be interested in. Uh, all this long tail story. And I do believe this is very interesting. But the problem with the second-hand bookstores is that you are facing something that you didn't know that you were interested in. But what I was going to say was... You, you're buying books which you are never going to order. Yeah, but they're, what they're I, what engineering serendipity. No, 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 no. Yeah, but what I what I think is fascinating is the more the point you made. Nothing about secondhand bookshops. I shouldn't have said. Is about people quoting things for the last three years. Yeah. If you look at the debate about schooling and curriculum in this country at the moment, the constant thing is is that you have to constantly revive, review the curriculum to make it relevant for the modern era, because knowledge is you know kind of runs out is out of date. So there's this idea that things that were thought, you know, and written 25 years ago, like, oh, well, that was, that's not very relevant. I mean, you know, Frank Ferretti's saying, read Sartre. He's such an old fuddy-duddy. Sartre, what's he got to say to the modern era? And Sartre's obviously a modern writer, right? So forget Socrates or forget, you know, and so on. But there's a serious discussion where people say, well, you know, these ideas, this research, wisdom, insights of the past, that legacy dismissed as... It has to be updated and modernised and more research and evidence and data come through. Rob, Rob quickly comment and then I'll, I'll go straight over there. Well, I, I only wanted to say that, that I agree with Andrew completely that, that the universities or academia are dead. They are dead already, for, for, unfortunately, for a long time. Um, but I think that's, that's a disaster. And, 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 and I, 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 I think that, that the kind of crisis we are dealing with now relate among others to the fact that there are no, no places anymore, which any society needs were young people for at least five, six years do have time to learn to think in a critical and independent way and then, for example, might discover that there is a great truth in Wittgenstein's Tractatus that it's very, very stupid to put all your cards on science because there are too many things science has nothing to say about. That, that was his key argument. And, and again, there's an, an, no academia, no intellectual life. All these things are, are, are together. Okay. So there and then uh, there next, please. Yeah. Um, I really think the key point is uh, what Ellie touched on earlier about the lack of interrogating the past. And I think that that affects our intellectual life in many ways. And perhaps the most important is that um, we forget that things were once different and that people once thought differently. And that, when you lose that, you become incredibly fatalistic about, about life and the possibility of change. And so I think this that dialogue with the past that tells you things could be different and people can think differently that's really important. Okay, thanks. Yes. Um, I agree with a lot of what the panel said, but I think Ivan Krastev's point about the loss of serendipity from second-hand bookshop is just simply untrue. I mean, I've researched uh, three books. Each of them start often with Google searches, which leads you from one link to another and discovering all sorts of stuff you didn't know before. Yeah. Second of all, every, I'm, most people here are probably on Twitter, and every single day I've been bombarded with things. Oh, I didn't know that. You click on a link and you discover new things. So the idea that serendipity has died with, you know, end of second-hand bookshops, I think is just palpably false. 
Just one thing that strikes me, you know, it's been a great weekend and it was, it's been really brilliant to hear from a, a lot of young people, but to me it seems their framework is completely instrumental. When they're talking about education, every young person I've heard in this conference has, has talked about it completely in the realm of instrumentality and what will it do for me. So I think I heard one young girl even trying to defend why she was doing English and saying a lot of people are against me doing English because, you know, it's, it's not a degree that leads to a job. But I say it's good for communications. And, and so you, although, Ellie, I'm appreciating you're saying, you know, it, young people are there, it's still, you know, you can have the big idea, but it does seem to be this instrumentalization of life and that being such a, a framework does seem to be a big impediment and a big barrier to grasp ideas. I'd just like uh, the panel perhaps to just think a little bit more about what Ellie raised about uh, this point about uncertainty. Uh, Because it seems to me that when you've got a culture, and I think contemporary culture is one that is very much an attempt to try and deal with uncertainty in a way that um, closes down every discussion before it actually gets off the ground. Because what we see from the business world to academia there's no such thing anymore as research for the sake of research. Research that has no outcomes that you can predefine, that there's no, in in business, for example, you want to talk about innovation, Um, if you look at what's happening globally across uh, spending on R&D, for example, it's going up, but the proportion that's going into research is dropping while everything is going into development. What that really is about is about trying to develop what you are certain of, what you already know, what can be productized. I think the same thing is happening in academia in terms of instrumentalization of, of policy, etc. In other words, we're very uncomfortable with unintended outcomes. We're very, and, and, and as soon as you have a culture like that, how do you begin to you know, make the legitimacy of unintended outcomes, of unexpected outcomes, of, 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 of research which is open-ended? How can you become comfortable with that? I think that is really the challenge that, 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 that needs to be addressed. I have to disagree with Andrew on the danger of big ideas exactly because I've written a book against big ideas and yet I realize listening to you that they are only dangerous when they are formulations of ready answers and this is how academics get dangerous when they borrow and pass on uh, from the past big ideas by way of uh, solutions. If we look into the history of ideas, any big idea has been born as a particular solution to a specific historical problem. So the, the point is there to focus on a specific grievance or a specific social concern. And that is how academics become relevant only as one of the speakers said, when there is an open-ended inquiry focused on specific what hurts. Okay, thank you. Um, yeah, I, I do find it difficult to be so negative, I have to say. Maybe I'm Pollyanna or something, but um, I do find, you know, I keep coming across people who are just doing some very interesting things and, you know, you read reports of new innovations and, and there's, there is so much going on that I, w- I find myself grouping under the idea of intellectual life. I find so much that's stimulating in um, books and all, all sorts of innovations. So I wonder whether Andrew, um, I'm feeling a bit of a kind of Andrew fanboy at the moment because yesterday I said, Andrew, I really agree with what you said. And, um, well, you can have my autograph. Yeah. <laughs> So, but perhaps you could say a bit more about this uh, blowing up of the universities. Now, I'm assuming you don't mean that literally. Um, I wish. But one I of wish. the things that I, I found very intriguing of, of the last year or so is the, um, and I'm wondering whether this is what you're getting at, the, uh, the new kind of online courses that are being offered. So there's an organization called Coursera, but there's a few like it, um, who are using sort of Stanford, MIT, all these kind of universities, and everybody's rushing to sign up now. I did a statistics course recently, wasn't very successful at it. I don't know what the chances of that. But anyway, um, the, but 75,000 pe- 75, people signed up for it, right? Now, I haven't looked at They're doing courses on poetry, on uh, social sciences. Now, there's nothing at the end of it. So this is to get to the main point I'm trying to make, which is about the, uh, the instrumental point that was being made um, at the front. There's nothing at the end of it. You don't get a certificate, and yet tens of thousands of people are signing up of, of different backgrounds of different ages. That, to me, is kind of an interesting notion of intellectual life. And so with the comments that are being made here, and with uh, particularly what Andrew was saying, and I think, Robert, you agreed as well, that, that it, I'm wondering now whether in, uh, these um, academia is stifling. And in fact, there's a possibility of almost going round it and, and kind of reaching people directly, uh, in, intriguing them and uh, engaging people and getting people to kind of think and, and be more critical. 
Um, yeah, I think I actually am the uh, the young girl that the woman over there was talking about, um, and that I did I did um, I think it was a bit of a different context, and actually I would say that I'm want, I'm hoping to take an English degree because I would like to learn about it, and what I plan to do is spend time studying the whole history of English literature, look at it, and but look at it from my view and perspective, and see what I make of it, and I think but I think there is the issue here of of academics really just apparently deciding what their ends are before they've really done the research, which I think is a bit, I think is horrific. And I think also there is such potential for politicians to use that and it, to be used with political motives. That, in a way, does apply a lot, especially to sciences. I think arts, I would hope... I mean, sciences, I think the issue is having the data and then being able to also have the scientific mind to be able to respond to that data in an intellectual way. Because you don't just... You can find out things, but you have to think about them then. You have to respond to them. And I think arts subjects, it's, it is the same, responding to text, responding to ideas. I think that aspect can't be lost, that we, do, that we have data and we have these objective things, but we need to take... What we do as academics is we take that objectivity out and we critically analyse it. I think, I think it's very interesting, though, just on, on that point, which is that we were talking earlier about whether, you know, I, I don't think it's just that the problem is social scientists, but it's also politicians using evidence as a way of closing down debate because that's how they often use science, and I think that's been... That is increasingly a real problem of a kind of scientism, uh, which is that you basically say the evidence shows this, therefore it's irrefutable, and that was the point that you were making. There's then... And, and they're hiding behind it as a way of not not having an ideological argument uh, based on principle or moral uh, arguments. There's that, but the, the bit that relates to your bit is, the sad bit here is that, you know, the arts then think, oh, science, science, science. Science is getting all the bloody glamour, right? You know, science, because people keep quoting PhD theses. And, uh, I mean, government ministers quote science all the time. So what's the arts response to that in this country is to basically come up with scientific evidence to prove that the arts are useful for society. It is so depressing. So they basically say, I can, I, there, is a, there is evidence that shows that the uh, longevity of life you know, and well-being uh, lasts uh, five times longer if you read. It's called bibliotherapy. This is argued for by the leading literary don in this country as part of a research. This is what they argue, right? I mean, it's philistinism gone mad, but they haven't got the confidence to just say, literature, good thing. Good thing. I mean, imagine not being able to say that. You have to have the evidence. Hi, I just want to make a point about the gap between the left and right, how it's closed over the last couple of years. Um, for me, um, coming to London in 1987, politics were very radical in terms of left and right. And I think in the battle of ideas, you could use the new Labour as a case study that changed politics for life negatively, even though I'm a Labour supporter, because it has made politics vanilla and it has made the choice of leaderships and parties vanilla in terms of all three leaders are white, middle class, similar academic background, similar age group in their 40s, and there's less choice now than there's ever been. And for me, a big part of ideas is choice and difference, and that is getting narrower, I think. In, in, in general, I started my remarks with there is a big idea, and this big idea is a paradigm, and this paradigm is dominated by what, what Maku said, it's, it's rationality and technology. And to be more specific uh, on things uh, Andrew said and, and Sledger said, uh, universities are no longer a place for ideas, indeed, because they have to be instrumental. That's the economic part of it. And as Claire just very well uh, remarked, uh, it has to be scientific. And the, the genius behind this thing is, is Michel Descartes. Descartes decided that things can only be scientific when there is an evidence, etc., etc., etc. Now, he had predecessors, or there came people like like, like, like Fico, who said, well, this is a very, very narrow-minded uh, view, and I'm not in favor of destroying universities, but I'm very much in favor of destroying this stupid paradigm and, and, and have a much larger view, and, to, and that indeed we realize that to get forward, we have to get rid of this thing that everything has to be economic, and to get new ideas, we have to get rid of this idea that everything has to be scientific. Yeah, I... Uh... Uh, this is a great discussion because I realized that what I said at the beginning is entirely wrong. Um, 
In fact, there are two big ideas. I think Rob's absolutely right. The first, I begin my book, Digital Vertigo, um, at the uh, public grave, the auto icon of Jeremy Bentham, who I, you know, if I blame the world on most things, I blame on Bentham and his form of utilitarianism. Because everything that we're talking about today, from you know, rational choice theory and political science departments to instrument, instrumentality to our obsession with data and facts, can be traced, I think, back to the, the utilitarian school. So, uh, and I end my book uh, falling back on, uh, on John Stuart Mill's critique of utilitarianism, which I think is still relevant and excellent, would be a good beginning for anyone interested in that critique. So that's the first, the first big idea, is that the, 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 the idea that has won is, is this concept of utilitarianism, and we are still sort of struggling to critique it. But there is another big idea out there which I'd forgotten about, where I should have remembered it since my whole career is based on critiquing it, which is the, the big idea of the network. The idea that, and, and perhaps there are two or three people who are really excellent uh, exponents of this ideology of the network, Stephen Johnson, uh, Clay Shirky, Chris Anderson. The idea that the network saves us in every sense. You know, a lot of it you can I trace back to German ideology, the idea of technology allowing us to realize our sociability, our humanity. And that's a big idea which I, I'm very critical of, but I think it's still a very important and interesting idea. So those are two big ideas which I'd forgotten about or hadn't quite realized, which are perhaps more relevant today than ever. And in response to the gentleman at the back, education now is the, the, the university is about to be, literally, I think, in some ways, literally about to be blown up. And the experiment will be in uh, how the network can re-architect the university, maybe de-specialize the academic, crowd learning, and all the other distributed modes of information and economy, which will go alongside with us. It's a massive idea. It may or may not succeed, but it's out there. Okay, thanks. I would, yeah. First of all, I should confess that I was not sponsored by a second-hand bookstore. Uh, they, they don't have money for this. Uh, uh, but, but where my point is, first of all, I very much agree that what we, is not in crisis is intellectual curiosity. In a certain way, because of the Internet, people are much more interested in different things than before. This is simply true. And secondly, of course, on the level of innovation and basically what the scientists are doing is very much. Uh, so what we are much more talking about is what's happening to the social sciences and to the self-reflection of society. And here I do, do see really two types of imagination. One is the technological imagination. By the way, it means that most of the problems we're trying to solve is the technological problems. And this is now very strong also with some of the companies. Basically, you believe that how the world is going to develop is a software problem. And you're going to have a software to keep, a go to keep government honest. Uh, all this idea of the open governments and so on, which is going to be software problems, this is classical technological imagination, which is optimistic. And on the other side, you have the demographic imagination. People don't remember anymore history, but they know very well what is the demographic projections, how old you're going to be, and how many of your ethnic group is going to be around, and so on and so on, which is highly pessimistic. Uh, and I find these two being really very important in shaping politics, fears, conversations of the people. Uh, for me, the crisis of intellectual debate is that the moral conversation and, let's put it, social science conversation divorced. There was a time in which they have been much closer together. Now you have a moral debates, very strong moral debates. Uh, but they're much more basically shaped by the religious uh, talk and religious issue. And when the social scientists started to talk, just to give my favorite example, you know that one of the major arguments in favor of uh, unveiling uh, uh, the Muslim woman was that because of the veil, they don't have enough of, I do believe, vitamin A, which is very bad for the skin. And this is perceived as a pragmatic argument to solve a basic identity issue. So you cannot reduce everything to the vitamin IA. It's just a really quick point on the university. I'll save everything else for, for the end. Um, I mean, I think institutionally, um, the thing is now giving intellectual life a bad name. That's essentially what's going on. So if you look at, say, Universities UK and the things it has to say, or if you look at the ESRC or the British Academy, they're 
pronouncements on things and things we should be doing, um, I think all the time make matters worse and give people a very problematic impression of what the whole thing's about. What I'm saying more is that um, I think any of us who happen to work in one or people who work in other places or who are doing other things can clearly take it on themselves to try and work out how you go about thinking about developing ideas and um, getting other people's minds interested and excited through them. It's perfectly possible to do that if you're working in universities now with students and you just have to sort of get on with it and, and do the best you can. I mean, to say that, you know, just to, to recognise that the university institutionally is now a kind of dead weight over the whole thing. I mean, there's no quick fix to it, is there? It's not like you can just... There's, well, there's some ready-made other place where you know, well, well, here it is. <laughs> you know, here's, the, here's the, the great ideas factory. I mean, it's something we've got to make. Um, in the discussion about instrumentalism, I think there's a little bit of a danger of separating means and ends too quickly. Because I think that when, you, when you're discussing what the purpose of research is, then there's no problem in having an end or an expected goal or, you know, an expected outcome from your research. The problem is that when you try and force the evidence to fit that expected outcome. And I think the, the discussion about means and ends is that the, the ends are always provisional. They're something that you, you set in advance and you, you'd, you'd always have to do that. Otherwise, what is the point in doing the research? You're trying to find something out. Research is never open-ended in the sense that it has no expected outcome. The point about it is, is that it has to be provisional and it has to be open to the evidence that you actually find. And therefore, you shouldn't, throw the, you shouldn't try and too hard to separate means and ends completely. OK, uh, thanks. Very quick. OK, um, I'm just trying to get my head around uh, two things. One is instrumentalism which seems to me to be about risk avoidance in many ways. And then uh, the other point that was made at the back about more and more people uh, kind of reading and go, you know, doing these private university courses without any qualification at, at the end of it, which seems to be very much about identity politics. And in some ways, both of them seem to be uh, divorcing ideas from the idea of anything transformative that ideas could really transform you and could transform others through you being able to convince others of them and could therefore have a, a bigger impact. Okay, that, that lady there. Uh, I went to a liberal arts school in the, in the States where during the, our first week of orientation, one of the addresses, one of the, I think the president addressed us and said that when we go to the library to take the book that we went for and also the book to the left and to the right of it, sort of going off your idea of the secondhand bookstore, and he sort of emphasized that as what, what would distinguish us from students who went to, you know, right to Amazon or ordered the book they were deliberately searching for. So sort of going off that, at, at a liberal arts school, you're taking philosophy classes alongside science classes alongside English classes, and compared to UK universities or European universities where you decide from the age of, you know, sometimes as early as 16, 17, what specific field you're going to go into and then your electives are sort of within that narrow field. It seems like you lose the opportunity to develop your perspective and sort of you know, take triggers from fields outside of, you know, whatever the field is you're, you're researching specifically. So I was wondering if you had any thoughts on which approach is per perhaps better placed to facilitate, you know, the development of big ideas. I think we should be a bit more pessimistic about the internet, actually. I think, Ivan, you were wrong about people going on the internet looking up ideas. I was in a seminar the other day, and the reading for it was ridiculously easy. And everyone else said it was hard. Now, I'm not actually sure why. And one girl put her hand up and went, oh, I came across this big word uh, that I didn't know what it meant, superfluous. <laughs> This is, this is our Russell Group University, by the way, in, in a sociology department which pr prides itself on being in the top ten in the country. <laughs> so instead of looking on the, the, the internet for the answer, she, she did, oh, sorry. it was really funny. <laughs> but I think, Ivan, actually, you were right about the second-hand bookstore because, you know, you're in the bookstore, you look at a book, and someone might, you know, the, the, the store owner might come over and say... Um, yeah, that's a good book that you know. And um, actually, the development of ideas com comes through um, discussions and interactions like this, which you don't get on the internet, I don't think. And I think the internet's very narrow when you're on websites talking about certain things. And uh, this is actually intellectual life, and I think 
the next generation of academics actually going to really suffer because in seminars now you're not actually having this kind of interaction and this kind of discussion which does develop ideas. I, I just want uh, serendipity in second-hand books are, are great, but reading lists are good too. But one of the things that's also happened is, is that adults haven't got the confidence to give recommended reading lists to students and say, you've got to read these great books. They've got nothing to do with your course, but you're just going to learn a lot from them. Or even when the adults give them the list, people say, how does that contribute to, or they're very long, or old, or irrelevant. But I think that also you need to be recommended things. Some of the, so it's not, I've not, I've not read all the most important books in my life because I find them in second-hand bookshops <laughs> accidentally. And I don't think Ivan was making that point. I mean, the point it was a different thing. But I do actually think that I've read things that were hugely important because somebody I trusted recommended something or told me that I was absolutely wrong and had to go and read this book that was going to show me why. And actually, I've then gone and read a book that maybe I disagree, you know, and all that. So that's just... No. Yeah, I mean, all this instrumentalisation of research in universities has coincided with the introduction of tuition fees for students and also the massive expansion of student numbers. And I just wonder whether uh, the less a relative advantage is conferred upon those at university by the fact of the sheer numbers at university will actually rebound and people will say, well, we're being conned, we're being told we're going to university because it's going to lead us to a job, a nice job. It won't do that because everybody's going to university. Well, not everybody, but, you know, 35%, 40%. So people vote with their feet, and in addition to the fact of all these, they have these huge tuition fees to pay back, they may actually decide it's not worth it. And actually, by the back door, if you like, the old-fashioned values of research for the sake of enrichment, I won't say for its own sake, but for the sake of enrichment, might actually return. Uh, Nico McDonald, uh, I don't think the internet is the problem. I think the internet's a tool that we use and it reflects what we do socially. But I wonder if one way to look at this is historically when there have been a flourishing of new ideas, we've also had new forms of um, sharing those ideas in the academy and sharing them to the rest of society for society to facilitate debate, whether it's papers or journals or conferences. Do the panel think that we, have, we are inventing the kind of forms often using the internet to share ideas in the academy with practitioners in the real world and for ordinary people like us to engage in those ideas and validate our own ideas beyond, say, the blog post, which seems to be a pretty generic invention. I just wondered uh, which ideas you would suggest that uh, are important. I, th I thought, actually, that's what we were going to talk about, uh, the, what ideas we should be pursuing. And I, that's, your, that's all. I just wanted to ask that. Because we are talking very much as though ideas are just ideas, like candy or something. But ideas are, in fact, there's a hierarchy of ideas. There's good ones and there's bad ones. So, I mean, surely we should be thinking about which ideas we should be uh, thinking about. Obviously a bit late now. <laughs> a, bit late, a bit late to do that. And in my view, there's no such thing as a bad idea in the sense of hierarchy... I think that there's ideas that should be contested, but that's not to say... That's just what I would throw in. Panel, one sentence, one book recommendation. Rob, you kick us off. One book recommendation. Um, I would say uh, Walden of Faroe, because there you find everything about what intellectual life could be, uh, how you can live intellectual life without the academia, and uh, when it comes down, uh, your, your point about, you know, which, which ideas uh, uh, matter most now, I think uh, the ideas which, which are an expression of, of the life of, of, of humanism, and that includes all the things which are no longer part of our language. There you find wisdom again. There you find cosmopolitanism again. There you find all these words again. Okay, thank you very much. Andrew? Um, I, for the gentleman in the, I, can't, I, I wrote a book called Cult of the Amateur, How the Internet's Killing Our Culture, so that's relevant, even though it's self-promotion. Uh, <laughs> in terms of what to read, uh, don't read my book, of course. Uh, I would uh, encourage people to read uh, an excellent essay by Zizek called, uh, I think it's called Davos Man, in which he reinterprets intellectual life as now... The, the, and, and this touches on the disappearance of left and right, is that you, have, you, should, you need an alliance of the left and the right who still believe in things, whether it's 
redistributed income or, 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 or wait, nationalism. Wait, wait. Them against the Davos men, the utilitarians, the rationalists, the instrumentalists. Right, um, okay, um, Ellie? Uncertainty, I mean, we haven't discussed it much. If people accept the proposition that that's the key question that we need to address... There's two ways to think about uncertainty. One is to see it as danger and want to circumvent the problem through creating new rules or limits. The other is to see it as an opportunity um, and approach it as something which we can explore open-endedly and come up with some new solutions for the future. And I think it's in the latter spirit that we need to approach it. I do think that means becoming masters of our past so that we can better understand the present on which, if any student hasn't ever read E.H. Carr, What is History, then they should. Okay, thank you very much. Um, and Ivan. Now, before the presidential elections in 2000, they asked the candidates, who is your favorite book? And Al Gore said, Stand Out Red and Black. And George W. Bush said, The Bible. And you know who won the elections. Uh, why I'm saying this? Uh, because, uh, uh, first, the book which I'm going to recommend, it should be an old book, you know, that you see it in the second hand. But this is her. Uh, <laughs> Uh, this is Hirschman's Exit Voice and uh, Loyalty. I do believe it's a book which is worth rereading now. But what is disappearing from the intellectual debate is exactly rereading books. There's so many. This is not the books on which you work. This is a different job. But basically, first, we're not rereading anymore because there's so much new things that you should do. And secondly, there is not a few books that all of us are reading, but reading in a different way. And this is why I do believe this common conversation is not. We're reading different books, and we're not rereading anymore, and I see this as a problem. Uh, no, the, 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 the book, no, no, no. The book which I was recommended, there was an American social scientist called Albert Hirschman. And he wrote a book in the 1970s which was called Exit, Voice, and Loyalty. This is how people differently react when they're disappointed. I find this is a very wise book. And you can probably read it. Okay, lobby him afterwards. He'll give you a list. My book recommendation is Simone de Beauvoir's novel The Mandarins, which is actually a very vivid fictional account, which I read recently, of... Sartre and Camus and Simone de Beauvoir and why ideas mattered after the Second World War is a fantastically enlivening book about how young people fought over ideas to the death, thinking it through, the dilemmas and the burden of freedom. And for me, uh, it made me or reminded me that ideas can have huge consequences. Getting them wrong can not that there's wrong ideas, but making wrong decisions. Um, but we have a responsibility to take ourselves seriously. So read that too. Thank you, everybody. Yes.